Father, it's a, such a, a joy, it's such a blessing to have your word, to come together as your church, the people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, who have been called and set apart by your Holy Spirit. Heaven is our home, all of us who have committed our lives to Christ. We thank you for that reality, and we thank you that, uh, as Paul said, we somewhat see through a glass dimly. There's, there's this ability that we have to begin to unlock who you are, but help us to have that excitement that every time we come into fellowship, every time we open up your word, every time we turn our hearts to heaven in worship, that you reveal just a little bit more of who you are to us. We pray that we will be surprised by you, enriched by you. We also thank you for Pat and Gaynell and ask that you will bless and refresh them and uh, just let their time together be sweet. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is called Jesus Crossed Over. And again, we're going to cover John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. I remember years ago after giving my life to Jesus, picking up a book written by Franklin Graham called Rebel with a Cause. And he had a line, and I don't remember it exactly, uh, but it said something like this. If you want to be a rebel, follow Jesus. That always stuck with me. I mean, just think about his life, his actions. What does he do? He recruits these fishermen, a skeptic, a Mossad agent, a tax collector, and some others. And you're thinking, a Mossad agent, yeah, he had a, you know, a couple militant people in there. And these 12 would one day become a dynamic team that would quite literally transform the world. Of course, Judas got subbed out and then another one plugged in. But still, they would go and they would transform the world. And they've got this period of time of three years of doing a deep dive into what it is to actually live for the glory of God. Think about it. They're called, they see Jesus perform miracles. Thousands of people come to listen to him and yet he cares about the one. He embraces children. He preaches this incredibly powerful message that isn't just skin deep, but it really cuts through to the heart. He shows up to a wedding and they're about to run out of wine. And so what does he do? He says, hey, let's, let's bring in about 150 gallons of water and he transforms it into wine. Then he and his new band of brothers, they take a road trip to Jerusalem and Jesus looks onto this massive temple mount and he sees that the high priesthood has corrupted what it is to worship God. They've brought in merchants who are ripping the people off who want to worship God. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't just buy a whip, he makes a whip. I have never seen a Jesus coloring book for kids where they're like, okay, here's your craft for today. We're going to make a whip like Jesus. Never happened. Kind of ruins the image that we want. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not always. And he takes the whip and he cracks it and he drives out those who are committing extortion and ripping off God's people. Soon after, he has an appointment at night, Nick at night, as the old joke goes. And he hangs out with the religious leader of Israel, the chief scholar, and he tells this religious leader, you ain't going to heaven. All the stuff that you have done, all the things that you think please God, they're meaningless, they're worthless. 
And what does he say? You must be born again. These are radical statements. These are radical ideas. And then he, and then he one-ups it again with his disciples. About a year into their ministry with Jesus, he takes them north, and the text that we're going to read says that he needed to go through Samaria. Why is that significant? Because Jesus, once again, rebels, this time against the culture war of Jew versus Samaritan. Here's the background. About 700 B.C., 700 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, the Assyrian nation conquers Israel. And they take all the healthy, all the smart, all the powerful, all the wealthy people away into slavery. And they, they leave those that they consider worthless or despised in the land of Israel. And over time, foreigners move in with their religious ideas, with their pagan idolatry, and they intermarry with the Jewish people who have been left behind. And then this sort of hybrid, corrupted version of Judaism emerges. A temple was erected in this place called Mount Gerizim, which is in uh, Samaria. And then in 128 B.C., the Jewish people come in in their zeal for true worship and they burn the Samaritan temple to the ground. So you can imagine there is real hostility between Jew and Samaritan. So when the text tells us that Jesus needed to go through Samaria, this was a heated moment. Here's how we're gonna move through the text. Verses one through nine, we're calling it look spiritually. Look spiritually. Uh, verses 10 through 26, learn honestly. Learn honestly. And verses 27 through 42, love purely. Here we are, verse one. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So he shows up around 12 noon, the sixth hour. He was weary. Don't think of you and me hopping off the plane after an international flight and collapsing from jet lag. No, this is, he was physically exhausted. It's almost like he didn't just sit delicately, but it was like a boom, clump to the ground. He's wiped out. He's tired, which is incredible to think in our minds that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who was in heaven entered in, and he wasn't just flesh, but he suffered like us. He experienced our fatigue, and so here is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who really is experiencing all of what it is to be a human being. He goes to Sychar. Sychar is the capital city of Samaria. Or uh, for those Bible students who know the book of Genesis, this is ancient Shechem. 
some really important things happened in this area. First, when Abram moved into the land of Canaan from southern Iraq, Shechem, Sychar, is where the Lord confirmed his covenant with Abram and Abram's descendants. This is where Abram built an altar and worshipped the Lord. This is where Jacob, after he fled from Esau, returned to the, to the land of Israel and met Esau and where Jacob built an altar and worshiped the Lord. This is where Joshua, who was the successor of Moses, stood toward the end of his life and brought the nation of Israel together and declared these famous words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this place where Jesus is, is incredibly significant. And in our context, the Samaritan woman that he will interact with is going to play on this history a little bit. But he needed to go through Samaria. Most Jews, if they're traveling that distance from Jerusalem, which is 65 miles south of Samaria, they're heading north into Galilee, here's what they would do. They would get close and then be like, eh, we're going around. And they would either go up the coast of the Mediterranean, or they would go on the east side of the Jordan River, and they would avoid the Samaritans at all costs. There was bad blood between the two of them. As I was thinking about this text, it struck me that Jesus, being fully human, needed physical rest but he was, because he was exhausted, but he also functioned, operated with spiritual eyes amidst his physical fatigue. I jotted this prayer down for myself as a reminder. Lord, help me not to be so destination-driven that I fail to see the souls you have placed in my path. That's me. I'm often, I want to get to the finish line. I want to make it. I want to make it. But, but if you think about it, how many goals do you set for your life in a given year or in a given decade? Quite a few. How much time do you spend enjoying the achievement of that goal? Very little. The majority of your time is what? Along the journey. So it only makes sense that if we can learn to be open to surprises from the Lord along the journey, we're really going to understand practically how to live in this fulfilled life that he calls us to. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. David Guzik explains this, quote, A rabbi would not speak with a woman in public, not even with his own wife. Some of you ladies are thinking, that would be great if we returned there today. He continues, It was also very unusual for a Jewish person of that time to ask a favor or accept a drink from a Samaritan's cup. Jesus genuinely surprised the woman. I also learned that the Pharisees were known as the bruised and bloodied blind. Here's why. 
they would be walking through the street and they thought for some reason that they were so holy if they saw a woman coming and they would close their eyes and continue to walk. And, and of course, they're just kind of bumping into things all over the place. Apparently, they thought that was more holy than actually looking. Weird. So this woman speaks, and it makes sense when she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, she makes an understandable yet fatal flaw in her thinking. She views Jesus as just an ordinary, religious, Jewish man. How often in my own life do I frame my view of God by what I think is comfortable for me? How often do I frame my view of God by what I think is possible? You pray like that? You have a need, and then you lay out the strategy for God to meet that need? You think that's how God's going to do it? God doesn't do it? God, take me out of this trial, away from this trial, God doesn't do it. Instead, he carries you through it. I don't know why. I don't know what's going on. There's something here that sometimes we can jump past. And it's this idea that God is entirely beyond our comprehension. We can apprehend God, but we cannot comprehend God. And, and how does John open his gospel account? Before we do that, think about John chapter 20. He tells us why he wrote. He said, and these things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. But he opens this section, his gospel, with this. In the beginning was the what? Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But then he says this, the word, eternal, infinite, all-powerful, spoke the universe into existence, became flesh, and dwelt among us. So you have this Samaritan woman she doesn't know who she's speaking with. She enters into the conversation thinking that Jesus is just another religious, arrogant person who looks down on her and her people. Can I say this? Allow God to surprise you with his love. Allow God to surprise you with his greatness, his holiness, his perfect character, and if I can hit pause on the text for a moment and fast forward into heaven. Uh, how many of you here are mathematicians or maybe you're good at math? And I'm not raising my hand because I am. I'm raising my hand because I'm showing you what to do. So if, you, if that's you, uh, raise your hand. God bless you. Uh, you're, you're the few, the proud. Uh, listen, in math, on a number line, there's something called a theoretical infinite, Right? where you can always take a number and divide it into fractions, and those fractions and fractions and fractions can become, what, infinitesimally smaller and smaller and smaller. It's a theoretical infinite, but it's not an actual infinite. 
our God is actually infinite, which means that we cannot comprehend him. We cannot get our minds around him. Why? Because he has no around. He is without borders. He is without limits. And when I think about heaven, this is what excites me is we are going to have an eternity to discover more and more of his infinity. Always discovering, always surprised, always fascinated with the greatness and the splendor and the majesty of our God. I can't wait. So fascinating. And we can get a start right here and right now. So this woman, Jesus wants her to look spiritually Go beyond the surface. Let's go deeper. And now he wants her to learn honestly. She had this limiting perception of Jesus. He's just another religious Jewish man who's at odds with her people, the Samaritans. I want to ask two questions of the text. Here's the first question. How did Jesus illuminate her understanding of his identity? The second, how did Jesus address her doctrinal thinking? She had bad doctrine, and he's going to fix that. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you then get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Do you ever wonder if she reflects on that question, are you greater than our father Jacob? And she says like, yeah, kind of, like a lot. But he doesn't do that. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. How does Jesus illuminate her understanding? Three simple phrases to start. Number one, if you knew the gift of God. Remember John chapter three, the chapter before? For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus is the gift of God. He is the greatest gift that God could give. He gave himself. And who it is who says to you, who am I who's speaking? The incarnate God. God in flesh and bones. This is what she's going to discover take all the stuff that she thought about the Jewish people, take all the stuff that she thought about the Jewish religion, just set it to the side because Jesus is revealing who God really is. Christian, you have people who ever say to you like, I love God, it's just those Christians I can't stand. Every time I look in the mirror, that's what I think. Man, I gotta get it right someday. God is sanctifying and changing me, but here's the good news. We're not pointing people to the church and saying, look how great God is. We're pointing people to Jesus and saying, look how great God is. And then when we look at the church, we say, hey, listen, Jesus is transforming us. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete that work. Our job, abide. 
And Jesus, by his spirit, will transform us to make us more like Christ. And people can see that process and go, that's what it looks like to follow Christ. And then Jesus said, you would have asked, and I would have given you living water. Now, she's thinking of physical water. She's thinking only on the horizontal plane. But the water that Jesus is offering her, it's spiritual. And the life that Jesus gives is eternal. See, this is how Jesus often works, is he takes a physical need, a physical desire, and those are good things, and then he couples it to a spiritual truth. Here it is. We need physical water every day. Ever go and think, I can go without water? It's not, I, I tried that once. It's really stupid. So here's the thing. We need physical water and we need living water. No other person, no other religion, no other faith will ever satisfy the spiritual thirst that we have in our hearts. Only Jesus satisfies our spiritual thirst. And here's the parallel. Jesus, as a human, and this woman, as a human, needs physical water every day. And church, we need spiritual water every day. And Jesus is that living water. Be in the habit of daily sitting, daily drinking in what he wants to speak to us through his word, through worship, through prayer, through fellowship. Check out verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband. She's not quite getting it. And come here. And so the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. You and I, we can just Google search things and figure it all out now, but there was no Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, tabloid press, anything like that. So the woman continues, and she says, uh, uh, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Pretty good guess. You're getting closer, Samaritan woman. You're right. Um, and then she says this, rather than going, oh, you're right, you know, let me tell you my story, it's been pretty rough, but let me explain away my, it doesn't, she doesn't do that, she changes the subject, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship, and Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. In other words, God has used the Jewish people to bring the message and the method of salvation to the world. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And here's what we need to see about Jesus, is he doesn't just jump on this ecumenical bandwagon where all roads lead to heaven. No. He addresses the bad doctrine. He doesn't ignore it because love will speak the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said of the Father that thy word is 
truths. Church, never fear speaking the truth, but always do it in love. Because if we really love people, we share the truth of who God is, of what salvation is all about. That's where true freedom is. There's a clear connection between right thinking and right living. And if our doctrine does not lead us to walk in righteousness, then we need a doctrinal correction. This, this, this woman, she has this lifestyle. Jesus knows the truth about it, but he also knows the thirst caused because of her lifestyle. Bring your husband here. I don't have a husband. She deflects. We think that we should worship on Mount Gerizim, but you say Mount Zion. Shechem, Jerusalem. Listen, real worship, it's not about a destination. Real worship is about a disposition of the heart and of the mind. She made worship about the place. Jesus said, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, true worship is motivated from the heart and it always lines up with the word of God. And Christian, there's this trend in the church. It's like the God is not a God of wrath. God is a God of love. That's the God I choose to follow kind of God. But the last time I checked, you can't have the cross of Christ unless you have a God of justice and the God of mercy. Therefore, if God is not a God of wrath and a God of justice, you actually don't have salvation. See, on the cross of Jesus, you see the wrath of God and the love of God merge into this beautiful picture of who God is and all of his holiness. And here's what it is to walk in freedom. Um, how many of you have been overseas to the Middle East? Saudi Arabia. What if you go over to Saudi Arabia and speak your mind? Just say whatever it is that you want to say, and then you get arrested, and you get hauled before the, the, the judge, and the judge says, what are you doing? And you're like, well, listen, uh, Constitution, freedom of speech. Judge laughs and says, you're not in America. You're outside the borders of freedom of speech. Here's the point. The Bible says that we have freedom in Christ. But all sin is slavery and all sin is a snare. We have not been set free for sin to do whatever we want to do. We have been set free from sin so that we can live in the freedom that Christ calls us to walk in. The whole point of grace is learning to walk in this freedom, this gift of life that God gives. So never make an excuse for sin. Turn from it. And if you say, I've been, I've been living this lifestyle of sin, I'm, I'm kind of like this woman. Listen, what do you do? Just what Jesus offered her. Drink from him. Receive him. Just drink from him, and he'll satisfy you. Let's continue on the text. See, the women and the Samaritans, they were ignorant. Uh, the Jewish people were couriers of salvation. And in a sense, there is an indictment against those who knew the truth, but they allowed their personal prejudice and pride to withhold the truth from the Samaritans. 
Freedom comes through knowing the truth. Forgiveness is found in the truth. Truth is not a weapon, but an invitation. But what did these Jewish people do? I am better than you because I know more, because I walk in this pseudo-righteousness when I compare myself to you. Therefore, I'm going to ignore you. And they forget, wow, God has given me this word so that others can be ushered into the freedom that we experience. In church, we have that same privilege we have that same opportunity not to look down on others, but to look with compassion toward others and to realize that just as Christ has set us free and has given us the hope of eternal life and is transforming us, so too God can reach other people. God wants to reach and transform them as well. Verse 25, this woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is also called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now listen, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Fast forward a couple years, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is gonna be hanging out with his disciples. What's he gonna do? He's gonna ask two questions. Who do people say that I am? The second question, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter full of confidence and courage, speaks up, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Here's what strikes me. Two years before his closest followers got it, this woman understood it. Two years before his closest followers got it, soon the entire town is gonna get it. The Christ, the Savior, is here. And we know him. And we're interacting with him. And this woman, living in sexual sin, parched from a series of tragic, broken relationships, scorned in Israel because of her status as a Samaritan, becomes one of the first to know the real identity of Jesus. Messiah, Son of God. See, Jesus illuminated her understanding of his true identity, and he also corrected her doctrine, revealing what worship is really all about. Now, we have five minutes left to do this. Jesus moves from the much easier task, correcting the Samaritan woman's thinking, to now illuminating the minds and transforming the hearts of his closest followers. Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they, listen to this word, marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So check this out. Jesus commands the winds and the waves to cease. The disciples marvel. Jesus exercises a demon from a mute man. The mute man speaks. The disciples marvel. Jesus is crucified, dead, and then laid into a stone tomb. They go into a locked room. Jesus shows up in their midst. The disciples marvel. Jesus speaks with a woman. The disciples How were they even married? <laughs> and they don't even know of her immorality. They're just, this is incredible. So 
Verse 28 makes perfect sense. The woman left her water pot and went away into the city. She's like, I'm out. These people are weird. And she goes into the town, and this is what she says to the men. Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. And now two scenes unfold in parallel. Scene one is this woman sharing her testimony in the city of her encounter with this Jewish man who is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Second encounter, second parallel scene, Jesus is dealing with the doctrine, and you might even say the arrogance of his disciples. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? They're pretty dense. <laughs> Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Again, we need physical water to live. We need the living water to live. We need physical food to live, and we need to do the will of the Father. That's our sustenance. The woman was spiritually part satisfied in Jesus. Verse 35, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together, for in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. What did the first century disciples see in this woman? They saw a gender. They saw a culture. They saw an ethnicity. They saw a religion. What do we see sometimes? A gender, a culture, an ethnicity, a political party. And if that's the full depth of our vision, we need to take a deeper look. The woman was searching for stability and for love and for hope. Jesus saw past the external. He saw her thirst. He pursued her heart. He crossed over. The fields are white, white. Last time I checked, the barley harvest is about to happen. Barley ain't white. The wheat harvest is coming. Wheat's not white. But the Samaritan people, dressed in sheep's wool, they made white turbans, and they wore white robes. The fields are white for harvest. In other words, get over yourself, get past your stereotype, get past your prejudice, and realize that there are people that Jesus loves, that Jesus died for, that Jesus wants to save, and Jesus wants to adopt into his family and church, we should all say amen because that's us. 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world.
Let's wrap it up. God is working in the mundanity of everyday life. He is stirring in the hearts of the people who are around us. Jesus crossed from heaven to earth. He crossed from kingdom to cradle. He passed from life to death. Listen, some of us here, we might share the word. Some of us might invest of our time into a life. And some of us might have the privilege of leading people to Christ. But it's always for the glory of God. Do you know what made Jesus marvel? Faith. It was simple faith. So church, step out in faith. Ask God, what would you have me do today? And in our insufficiency, God will show himself strong. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you so much for showing us who you are in the person of Jesus. You've come to seek and save the lost, set us free, and bring us into eternal life. I pray, Lord, that you will give us the heart for people. That we wouldn't separate ourselves thinking that we are better than sinners. Because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. You, the perfect, the holy one, you pursued sinners. You didn't sin, but you pursued sinners. You spoke the truth in love. I pray, Lord, that we will have the courage and the boldness to do the same. And Lord, let our time with you be a daily surprise, surprised by joy, surprised by your love, surprised by your presence. Continually expand and illuminate the eyes of our understanding that we would just be in awe of you. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's worship the Lord one more time together.